while you guys are finding Psalm 73 in your Bibles, I just wanted to begin our time today by simply reminding you of the text that we heard last week in last week's sermon that was found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Let me read it to you while you find our psalm for today. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 9. He said, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, why was it that the Apostle Paul used the word indescribable to speak of this gift of Jesus Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul had met the Lord of glory on that day on the road to Damascus. The Apostle Paul understood as much as any human man can understand the eternal plan of God's redemption. The Apostle Paul understood that the Son of God had left heaven to become a man and to die on a cross for sinners, to ransom some people for himself so that he may be worshipped forever by them. This, this revelation of God's mystery of salvation, Paul knew. And so it was very fitting that Paul would call this indescribable. And it is an indescribable gift. Jesus Christ is an indescribable gift. So to have Jesus Christ, to have the incomparable God, is to therefore have incomparable riches. And so you have incom incomparable riches if you are in Christ Jesus today. And this truth is a truth that actually brings us to our text today. Because today we're going to see just what happens when one loses sight of this indescribable gift. I say this because in Psalm 73 we have laid out for us the very thinking of a child of God when he fails to appreciate the God of his salvation. We will see how his mind becomes overcome and clouded by doubt and temptation and it's not a sexual temptation that the psalmist will fall into but an even worse temptation than that a temptation to question in one's mind the very promises of God a temptation to question the very goodness of God and a temptation to forget the indescribable gift that we've been given in our salvation which is namely God himself I chose this text today because I think that Psalm 73 is one of the most honest, sanctifying, and encouraging texts of Scripture for a Christian to know. This is one of those texts that we should all hide deep into our hearts so that we may not sin against our God as the psalmist does. And so the sin that we're going to look at today is not one of those sins that's uh, immediately noticeable um, by others looking on at you. Um, but, but as with all sins of the heart and the mind, it will inevitably lead to an outward manifestation of rebellion against God that will be evident to, to all. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we will be able to see a little bit of ourselves in the psalmist's words today. The man in our psalm attributed to writing this psalm, the man pouring out his heart and revealing his sin to us, is a man named Asaph. Asaph is a Levite. This man Asaph is actually um, attributed with writing 12 of the 150 psalms that we have in our Bible. First Chronicles uh, chapter 16 tells us that this man Asaph was in fact King David's right-hand man when it came to the worship of God. 
Asaph was in charge of the very worship before the Ark of the Covenant. And so I say all this to say that this man who falls into this deep sin is no mere proselyte. He's no new man to the, to the worship of Yahweh. But in fact, this man, as we'll see, that comes right to the very brink of apostasy was a very godly and righteous man, most assuredly. And so I say that to say that none of us are beyond falling into the same sin that Asaph falls into. And so we'd all do well to take heed to what Asaph has to share with us about his experience. So let's begin. Psalm 73, verse 1. Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so, so far, so good for Asaph. Yes, God most certainly is good to Israel. God freely chose to make covenants with the people of Israel, to use this very small nation in his plan of redemption. And yet, even in verse 1, Asaph makes the very necessary qualification to show exactly what people of Israel he's speaking about when he says that God is surely good to them. He says to those who are pure in heart, God is ultimately good, salvifically good to those who have been given a pure heart, to those who have been regenerated, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, those who have a circumcised heart and not merely circumcised flesh. And so verse 1 is a very true statement by Asaph. This is a statement that Asaph would have heard his entire life. This is a truth that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, Asaph would have been taught this by his parents his entire life. Asaph would have heard this statement from the elders of the people of Israel. And Asaph would have seen this truth in the very scriptures themselves. This is Asaph's theology. This is what Asaph believes, that God is good to those who are pure in heart. So going on to look at verse 2 and following, from here, verse 2 through verse 16 is really going to be all downhill for Asaph as this belief that he has about God, about the goodness of God, is going to be challenged by what Asaph sees and what he experiences in his life. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here, Asaph states his sin for us. Asaph had become envious of the wicked due to the prosperity that they were enjoying. And how far did this envy take Asaph in verse 2? He says, to the point of almost stumbling. Very close to the point of slipping, he says. And I think it's very important to realize that this stumbling and this slipping can't simply mean that Asaph was going to stumble from temptation into actual sin because in verse 3, Asaph admits that he is already fully in sin. He's envious of the wicked. Asaph is already breaking the Ten Commandments. So because Asaph is already in sin, I take this next, this next step of stumbling and slipping that he's in danger of falling into as being full-out apostasy and unbelief a giving up of sorts. Why maintain this difficult life of holiness if the wicked always seem to be the ones prospering? This is Asaph's dilemma. 
God promised to be good and bless those who are pure in heart. So why is it that the wicked are the ones receiving all the good things in life? I think we can really get a good feel for Asaph's perspective as he looks at these wicked men. Because if you'll notice in the second phrase of verse 3, that this word that our Bibles have translated prosperity to describe the lives of these wicked men, this is the Hebrew word uh, in our English, the Hebrew word that's translated shalom. And if you're familiar with the word shalom, this is quite often the word that the Bible uses for this great peace that the people of God share and have and experience when God is for them and protecting them. And for Asaph to use the word shalom to describe the lives of these wicked men shows just how distorted his view of them is. So let's go on in the text to see what all exactly it is that Asaph is perceiving in these wicked that's so enticing to him that would cause him to actually envy them. Verse 4 and 5 say, For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. So the first thing Brother Asaph mentions is he speaks to the fact that he sees many of these rich folk going on into eternity without any pains in their death. These men seem to die peacefully, surrounded by many family and friends. There doesn't seem to be any struggle at their deaths, no fear as they pass over into eternity. Their bodies are fat. These rich always seem to have plenty, and their bodies reveal it. These wealthy rich are not affected by famines, they're not affected, affected by the bad economies like everyone else. Their ribs are not showing like the day laborers who are simply trying to work from meal to meal, trying to survive. Verse 5 goes on to say that because they have plenty, they're not in trouble as other men. The word used here for trouble is, is simply denoting these, these common struggles of the daily grind that most of us have in our lives. The constant struggle to stay in the black, to stay out of debt, the fight to keep your job. These wealthy aren't concerned at all with these seemingly small details of life that seem to bog many of us down and drive us crazy at times. For us, it would be like seeing these, these rich whose lawns are always perfectly manicured, but they're not the ones mowing them. Their mansions have no problems, and when they do, they call the contractor and say, get it quick fix and upgrade that while you're at it. Their vehicles don't break down because they're always new. These rich just don't seem to have the problems that most everyone else has to deal with. And so before we, we get too deep in this, I just want to make one necessary qualification. There's something that we need to establish um, before getting too far into this. It, it's this, that simply having money and even being rich and wealthy is never in and of itself in the Bible condemned and called sinful. King David himself was most certainly extravagantly rich. The Apostle Paul, in his letters to his own churches, addresses the rich Christians several times without ever hinting at the thought that their wealth was sinful. And yet the scriptures do give many warnings about the entrapments and the dangers and love of money. Just look with me here at verse 6 where this wealth and ease of life leads these unregenerate and wicked people. Verse 6 says, 
Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. The text here describes the wicked as clothing themselves with two things, pride and violence. And is it not true and fitting that the text lists pride first? Because when one becomes so prideful to the point that he will actually put it on like a necklace, with this type of pride comes a a boldness and a lack of godly fear that will inevitably lead one to be willing to commit acts of violence with no expectation or fear of repercussion. With pride comes the tendency to look down at others, to think less of them. And with this digression in one's thinking, they will easily come to the point where they will oppress and do violence to those who are not worthy as much as they are. The saying's true, with money comes power, and with power comes corruption, and with corruption comes oppression, and these wicked rich men love it. Verse 7 through 9 is going to go on to describe more of this pride and what it leads to. Verse 7 says, their eye bulges from fatness. With these words, the writer's trying to describe just the, the eagerness and excitement that these prideful men experience as they go about seeking out their sins. Their eyes can never be satisfied. They're on the very verge of having to come out of their heads to get all that they can see. The text says that the imaginations of their heart run riot. There's no fear of God with these sinners. They think, they do, and they say whatever they wish with no limit to seeking out everything that their hearts desire. Verses 8 and 9 say, They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. These men have so seared their consciences that they they, they freely mock and wickedly speak of oppression. There's none to challenge them, so they openly abuse and oppress the poor. These men are so bold that they actually voice their pride against the, against the very heavens, the dwelling place of the Most High God. And so the question is, how is it that a godly man like Asaph could actually come to the point of becoming envious of arrogance like this? Could it be that these boasters have been so given up that they've completely rid their minds of the only true sovereign God and have begun to view themselves as gods? And could it be possible, just as it was with even the garden, that we would actually be tempted by the thought of how amazing it might be to actually be like God? Is this not what is at the heart of this temptation, to be on top of the world doing whatever you want without a care in the world? This is the temptation. Have you ever even thought or wondered for a moment what it would be like to be this rich and this powerful? Have you ever weighed in your mind whether it would be worth giving up this Christian walk to seek out all the pleasures that you could find if you were to go headlong into this world and forfeit what you know would be your eternal destiny? Have you ever weighed that out? Well, brothers and sisters, do not be deceived because these fanciful thoughts are straight from the pit of hell. And thank God that he has kept you from stumbling in these times when you've thought about this for too long. 
There has only been one who has ever been able to perfectly ward off these temptations. When offered the entire world by Satan himself, the Lord Jesus Christ said without hesitation and answered with Scripture, You shall love and worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is why we need the righteousness of Christ given to us because our righteousness will not do. Verse 10 says, Therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. Well, in studying this text, this was one of the more difficult verses to interpret because several questions arise in this verse. Number one, whose people is it that are returning? Is it God's people or the rich man's people? And the second question that comes up is, what is this place that they're returning to? Well, to answer the second question first, what is this place that these people are, are coming to? I believe in the context, it's the place that the wicked have found themselves to be in in verse 9 that we've already read. This place where they have grown so blinded by their pride that they have lost all fear and discernment over the reality of who they really are. They've become insane to the point of blaspheming the God of heaven. This place is the place of autonomy and rebellion against God. And to answer the question of who's, who is this people, whose people it is that are likewise coming to this place of rebellion, I think it's quite obvious that the pagans and ignorant people of this world would very likely fall into this trap. But I actually think the psalmist is describing the reality that even some of God's people, some of the people of Israel are drawn into this place of sin. Asaph, the very writer of our psalm, being a very prime example of this. These depraved and boastful men, in their deluded confidence, a confidence that is so great that it boasts all over the earth, even to the heavens, actually entices and emboldens others to follow them in their folly. And so it is, those that follow them drink of their iniquity like water, as the pleasures of sin do taste sweet, yet they never satisfy the soul, always requiring more and more. These boasters in verse 11 say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? What's interesting is that these people, even at this point, are not questioning whether God is really there or not, but simply whether he is aware of what's going on down here on earth. The wicked are thinking, God must not see my wickedness, or even worse, he doesn't even care, because all I've been doing is prospering. The people of God likewise begin to wonder, God, do you know what's going on down here? These rich are getting away with murder, and you're doing nothing about it. And so with verse 12, Asaph concludes and sums up everything that he's been describing for us concerning these wicked and arrogant men. Verse 12, he says, Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Well, now we have a change of focus in our text. Our brother Asaph is going to turn his, his direction from looking outwardly at these wicked men who remain prosperous to looking inwardly at his own life and how he's chosen to live his life. And this is what he thinks to himself in verse 13. He says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. 
for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. How low has the thinking of Asaph fallen? What happened to the bold declaration that we saw in verse 1? That God would, in fact, be good to those who are pure in heart. What happened to Asaph's confidence in the goodness of God? Asaph here is describing the regrets that he has of living a godly life. And Asaph had lived a godly life. He says he had been pure in, pure in heart on the inside. His hands had been washed in innocence on the outside. And you can almost hear in Asaph's voice in verse 14 just the sound of a tired and depressed man who's ready to give up. These are the words of a man who has taken his eye off the prize. Yes, a godly life is a very difficult struggle. A godly man wakes up every morning fighting his flesh. A godly man wakes up every morning looking for his cross to carry. But the question is going to be, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Asaph goes on to reason in verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph, Asaph being a wise man, still had enough sense to realize that if he was to speak out loud the struggle he was having, being that he is the chief worship leader of the people of Israel, he would, in fact, cause great damage to the children of God. Asaph would most assuredly cause many to stumble and fall if he was to express this internal weighing out of whether being a godly man was, in fact, worth the trouble. Verse 16, he says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. I think here's the place where we need to stop and recognize the depths of Asaph's problem. Because Asaph's problem in sin was not simply that he saw some people getting rich and wanted to be rich too. Asaph's problem was a theological one. God had promised to be good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, so why is it that the wicked seem to be the ones blessed and not Asaph, who is the godly man? Are God's promises not going to be fulfilled? I think Asaph's main problem is that he viewed some of these old covenant promises of God in a very simplistic and even worldly way, in a way that lacked faith. Let us consider the great example of Abraham. Abraham is a perfect case in point of how a spiritual man trusts the promises of God despite his present circumstances. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, specifically through the descendant of his son Isaac, would come the promised seed, the Messiah, who would bless all of the nations. God made this promise to Abraham about his son Isaac. God then proceeded to command Abraham to kill this son Isaac and make him a sacrifice. Did Abraham then question the promise of God that he had made to him? No. Abraham believed that God would even resurrect his son from the dead to fulfill his word. Again, God made another promise to Abraham. This promise was concerning all of the land that Abraham was to inherit and, and pass on to his descendants. But when Abraham was old and dying, Abraham was not possessing or controlling all of this land marked out for him by God. 
all Abraham had at the time of his death was a small burial plot. And yet there's no record in Scripture of Abraham on his deathbed saying, God, what about the land you promised me? Abraham died not having seen the fulfillment of many of the promises. Abraham, as I said, did not see the nations blessed by the one coming through his seed. Abraham did not control the land promised to him at the time of his death. Abraham's children had not become as numerous as the sand in the sea as God had told him it would. But Abraham waited patiently in faith, even through death, knowing that God was faithful to his word. And it's only because of our place in history that we get to see many of these promises fulfilled. We even get to see the spiritual and redemptive significance of all these promises in the words of the New Testament. But our brother Asaph, on the other hand, Asaph seems to have been expecting all his blessings here and now and is not sure why God is not coming through for him. Asaph also seems to have been expecting judgment to be poured out on these wicked immediately and was not willing to allow God to deal out his retribution when he seems fit. We're not told how long Asaph struggled with all of this in his mind, but from the depths of his description in this text, we know that this was not merely a random thought. Asaph was coming all the way to the point of nearly throwing in the towel. But, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, all of these maddening and warring voices inside of Asaph's head were about to be silenced once for all. We're going to see here in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, Asaph's restoration of faith and reason. All of this internal confusion that he had in his mind continued until, until verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. What was the means of grace which God used to restore Asaph? It was the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary, the place of corporate worship for the people of Israel. The place where the necessary sacrifices were made. The place of fellowship among the people of God. And the place where the book of God's law was kept. The very word of God which reveals to us the mind of God and his eternal and infinite perspectives. All of these graces were brought to bear on Asaph when he came into the sanctuary of God. And brothers and sisters, all of these graces we likewise enjoy when we come together as a church. We look back to the final and perfect sacrifice of Christ and we worship God for it. We fellowship around our shared salvation. We study and we submit ourselves to the word of God. In the same way as Asaph, when we come together for public worship, our reason and our perspective is properly restored to us. Because, brothers and sisters, sometimes it only takes a week for our thinking to be derailed, for us to become deceived and think wrongly about things, things we believed all our life. All of the graces that God provides to us through his church are necessities for the genuine Christian if he thinks he's going to make it to the end of this narrow road we call the Christian life. Because you're doing nothing but setting yourself up for failure if you neglect the church of God and the direct command of Scripture itself not to forsake the assembling together of yourselves, as it says in Hebrews 
So Asaph that day comes into the sanctuary of God, possibly to minister to the people of God himself, and is reminded of a great truth. He says in verse 17, Then I perceive their end. Asaph suddenly realized that it's not the present and passing circumstances of one's life that really matters, but it's the eternal state of one's soul. What really matters is whether one's going to be loved or hated by God for all of eternity. And for these wealthy reprobates that Asaph has been envying, there's no doubt what their fate is going to be. Asaph goes on to describe this fate for us. Verses 18 through 20, he says, Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. What is this slippery place that the Lord has set these evil men upon? This slippery place that slithers all the way down to hell is ironically their prosperous positions here on earth now. This great trap which God in his sovereign judgment has handed out to these people is that he's given them over to the riches and the pleasures of this world. It's the trap of riches. Remember the words of Jesus himself in Luke chapter 18, verse 24. He said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it asked and said, then who can be saved? But he said, these things that are impossible with people are possible with God. This trap of riches is so strong, it's so binding, that it takes the miracle of regeneration for one to escape the love of this world. Remember the response of the rich young ruler to Jesus himself just previous to these words in Luke 18. The rich young ruler who had much was not willing to give up his possessions, even to have eternal life. He thought that he owned many possessions, but as we saw in the text, his many possessions owned him. Back to these enemies of God in our psalm, just when these men have all but put God out of their minds, once and for all, God will then suddenly, in a moment that they've least expected it, crash down upon them and will cast them down to destruction and destroy them. The terrors and troubles that they never experienced here on earth will for eternity be theirs. All of the fame and pomp that these wicked have attained in their lives will instantly be brought to nothing. As verse 20 describes, it will all appear just as a dream, it will all disappear just as a dream does when one awakes from their sleep. When the anger of the Lord is aroused and his wrath has been kindled, he will despise their form, the text says. The Lord himself will wipe these wicked from the face of the earth forever and will bring upon these unexpected souls the justice that their deeds deserve. Asaph looks back one more time in verse 21. He says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. 
I was like a beast before you. Asaph recounts his previous state before God one more time. When Asaph's heart had been troubled and pierced within him because of all this questioning of God and his doubting, Asaph now realizes how foolish he had been. He says that he was like a beast before the Lord, like a mere animal. It was as if his capacity to reason had become that of a creature that simply seeks to eat and to mate with no awareness of his creator, no awareness of the eternal plan that God is working out on this earth to glorify himself. Asaph had indeed lived out the experience of King Nebuchadnezzar, that great king of Babylon, that because of his pride, God likewise turned into a beast and caused him to eat of the grass of the field for seven years. This thinking and mindset that Asaph had fallen into is literally rock bottom for a man of God. Because I think it's, it's bad enough to fall into the temptation of being envious of some of those maybe in the church who have much and seem to have a very nice life. But to be envious of these who are the wicked, the very enemies of God himself, to envy them is indeed a lapse of judgment of epic proportions. But lastly, and brothers and sisters, for my favorite section of this psalm, we now have Asaph back in full communion with God, and now Asaph is going to bless God for his salvation despite his own lack of faithfulness. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, nevertheless, despite his beast-like thinking, he says, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me to glory. Brothers and sisters, we have a faithful God Despite our times of faithlessness, despite our times of sin and beast-like reasoning, the God who has called, him to, called us to himself will be continually with us. God has taken his hand to ours, and there is none who can snatch us out of his hand. He is greater than all, and all whom he has called he will glorify. In verse 24, Asaph specifies the type of counsel that it is which will guide us all the way to glory. He says it is your counsel, speaking of God's counsel. This is the counsel which will lead one to eternal life and everlasting glory. Asaph's problem from the beginning was that he was attempting to figure out all of the providence of God. and was attempting to figure out all of God's sovereign distribution of blessings and judgments based on his own finite and limited understanding of things, if Asaph would have but trusted the word of God from the very beginning, he would not have put himself through this dark night of the soul that he found himself in. Brothers and sisters, our brother in the faith, Asaph, learned many hard lessons during his trial. As I said, he allowed his understanding and judgments as a mere creature to overrule what the infinite creator God has revealed to be true, namely that God is good to those who are his people, to those who have been given a pure heart. An equally as important lesson, and it's the one that I started the sermon off with today, is that Asaph failed to treasure the indescribable gift which had been given to him when God saved him. The moment we fail to see our Savior as indescribable, we're opening up ourselves to find 
satisfaction in other gifts, gifts that this world can provide, money, power, pride, fame, good looks, entertainment, ga games, etc. All of these will fade away, instantly leaving you naked, helpless, and sinful before an omniscient, holy, and just God. And so you must be covered in the righteousness of Christ on that day. You had better treasure Jesus Christ and his righteousness now before the cares of this world grab a hold of you and blind you to the sure counsel of God. If you do, in fact, have Christ, hold on to him tighter than ever. If you do not have Christ, he himself commands you to repent of your sins against him and to put your trust and put your faith in his righteousness and his perfections in what he's done on the cross. And he promises you that you will be saved. I want to save the, the last four verses of this text, verses that many know well. I want to save these for our benediction reading. In these last, last four verses, Asaph is really going to sum up for us all that he's been unfolding for us in this chapter. So if you would, just hold that place, stick a finger in that place, and we'll return to this as we sing. But let's pray as Pastor Emilio comes up to lead us in a song. Father God, we bless your name. And Jesus, we thank you so much for yourself, for you being the indescribable gift and Holy Spirit, we pray, God, that you would make this, this gift precious to us. Make it satisfy us, God. Let Christ be our all in all. Let us never look to the left or to the right, but keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let us remember our great need for him every time we sin. God, remind us of this indescribable gift that we have in Jesus Christ. We bless your name. Amen. Psalm 73 together, beginning at verse 25, I'll read them. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God bless you. Please stay in fellowship. Amen.